um, teacher prep programs have had the opportunity to bring in families more as teachers, more as experts of their children to inform curriculum choices in their program and to also, and most importantly, to impact um, future teachers and how they view and see and work with families um, on the ground, in the classroom, and in different educational spaces for really looking at the well-being of the child. I'm Emily Shields. I'm Marisa Morales. And I'm Andrew Sellingson, and welcome to the Compact Nation podcast. How's everybody doing this week? Pretty good, actually. Sound surprised? Well, yeah, it's, it's warm and hot and humid in Chicago, but uh, yeah, it's been a rough few weeks, but I feel like this week is looking up. Okay, kind of. We have Thursday and Friday off, and we're gonna see family and try to approximate our normal Fourth of July plans. Um, but yeah, we we've seen a few more friends lately. You know, outside and socially distanced. I have a bunch of fortieth friend birthdays this year, and we're trying to make them feel not terrible. So, um, all that's been good, but yeah, I don't know. It's still hard and weird. That's for sure. I'm in the process of planning my sister's 40th birthday and we're doing an 80s theme. So I just got this like graffiti background that we're going to do pictures and we're having it in this big open field um, where she lives. And so we'll have a socially distanced 80s yeah. themed party with, you know, dress up and all. Um, so, yeah, it should be fun. That's good. We honest, uh one of my good friends, we just didn't the open field 40th birthday. So <laughs> it's a thing. <laughs> I've been discovering the benefits of bad uh, 60s and 70s urban design because Columbia Point in Boston, which should be a place where there's a thriving community, is actually a place that is a few big buildings like the JFK Library, the Edward M. Kennedy Institute, UMass Boston, and enormous swaths of parking lot. And but it has the best uh, sort of waterfront access anywhere in the world. And it's empty. It's just completely deserted. Like there should be a teeming neighborhood there if anyone had designed the city well. But instead, it's just all this empty space and beautiful trails by the uh, the ocean. So we've discovered picnicking and walking down there. And you can have like 100 miles around you because it's completely empty. But that's good. It means public access, no? I mean, it's good, except that, like, it should also be a place that people live near in a normal, like, you know, in good urban design, you don't take the best places and make it incredibly hard for people without public transit access to get to them, which is what the public transit piece I get. Not everybody living on the water and only the rich can afford it. You know, I prefer public access. Yeah, no, I mean, oh, the the fact that the waterfront itself is accessible to people, that is just plain good. The fact that what's nearest it is vast parking lots rather than like housing and schools and other things that would get people close to it. That's nuts. But it turns out to be a benefit in a pandemic. That's all. Uh, which, you know, we, we there's a pandemic. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't want to shock anyone. Don't want to break the mood. Uh, but yes. A little bit of a pandemic. Uh, 
And it continues to pace as it happens. So here we are uh, discussing other things to keep ourselves sane in the midst of that. And so in the midst of a complicated summer with a pandemic uh, still raging across the United States, et cetera, we're still focused on doing great work to support folks doing civic and community engagement in their colleges and universities. So a couple things to share. One, uh, you can find information about what we're calling the Fusion Course, which is an opportunity for instructors to learn about integrating civic and community engagement into online courses courses and programs, obviously quite relevant in a moment of remote teaching or planned remote teaching or possible remote teaching in the fall. So folks who are interested in learning about that uh, and signing up can go to compact.org and find the information. And we also have a special summer webinar series focused on topics that are of particular relevance given both the pandemic and its economic effects, its effects on communities, and also its impact on the kinds of teaching and learning that are happening in colleges and universities. So for both of those things, you can head to compact.org, learn more about them, and we hope to see you uh, joining in some of these opportunities this summer. We also have uh, a great conversation to share with you today on the podcast, and uh, it constitutes an interview uh, by a former host of this podcast, now guesting as an interviewer, J.R. Jameson, uh, executive director of Indiana Com Campus Compact. And J.R. sat down for an interview with the winner of our Linton Award, the Ernest Linton Award, which uh, recognizes early career faculty members for the scholarship of public engagement. It's an award that we uh, put into practice in collaboration with Brown University. Uh, it's named for Ernest Linton, who was uh, a real leader. He was a physicist, but he was a uh, big thinker about how the work of colleges and universities could and should serve the public and communities. Uh, so this award recognizes his legacy and uh, JR sat down with the 2019 winner, Christina Santamaria Graf, who is assistant professor of urban teacher education at IUPUI in Indianapolis, Indiana. And uh, Christina's work is phenomenal. Uh, I will let the interview speak for itself, um, but she is a great exemplar of taking her academic capacity as a researcher and as a teacher and connecting with the needs and the opportunities for especially Latinx immigrant families of children with disabilities um, and doing so in a way that serves the interests of those children, of those families and those communities. And uh, so we were excited to be able to celebrate her work through this award. And before we jump into the interview, two quick notes. One, Nominations for all of our Impact Awards for 2020, including the Linton Award, are open now, and you can find more information at compact.org slash impact dash awards, compact.org slash impact dash awards, or just go to compact.org and look around and you will find the links. Uh, if you know faculty members or community engagement professionals, institutions that deserve celebrating for 
their community and civic engagement work, their contributions to the public good. This is a great opportunity uh, to to make sure that that others know about the terrific work they're doing and that they can be recognized. So I encourage you to go to the website and think about nominating uh, somebody for those awards. And the second note is just that this interview was done several weeks ago. And because we're in a period of rapid change and also the experience that nothing is happening at all, uh, it can be confusing to listen to things that happened even a few weeks ago. So I just want to mention that uh, it took place a little while ago. uh, And given recent events, we prioritized a couple other uh, hotter topics of the moment. But we know that this is a kind of evergreen interview uh, that you will enjoy and, and have the opportunity to learn about some great work. So uh, take a listen. Dr. Christina Santa Maria Graf, thank you for joining me on the Compact Nation podcast. Thank you for having me. As you know, I used to host this podcast in seasons one and two, and I'm back only for today as a guest interviewer for a few reasons. I live in Indiana, and you live in Indiana. You are the recipient of the Ernest A. Litton Award for the Scholarship of Engagement, but most importantly, I consider you not only a colleague, but a dear friend, and it's a true honor today to talk to you and interview you and get to learn a little more about your work. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here and to be able to have this opportunity to talk with you. Um, I wanted to just talk a little bit about family as faculty and why I'm here and why we're having this conversation. Um, Basically, you know, for over 10 years, my work has centered on families of children with disabilities. And specifically, I've been working with here in Indiana, um, Latinx um, immigrant families. And what's amazing about that is they're from all over the world. Um, Whereas my work before with families um, centered a lot on um, people from Mexico in particular. But family as faculty, why I love this particular model, um, and I came across it about five years ago when I was putting together some research and looking at different scholarship for working with families, was that it is a health care-centered model that looked at the expertise of families in healthcare settings. And so doctors and nurses began learning from families who would in all intents and purposes, provide them with valuable information about their child. And this program has been adapted or this model, this approach has been adapted to special education teacher preparation programs. And through those programs, um, teacher prep programs have had the opportunity to bring in families more as teachers, more as experts of their children to inform curriculum choices in their program and to also, and most importantly, to impact um, future teachers and how they view and see and work with families um, on the ground, in the classroom, and in different educational spaces for really looking at the well-being of the child. 
Mm. What were your motivational factors to develop the course? I mean, you talked a bit about uh, families you've worked with in the past, but what was that moment where you determined, I'm going to definitely make this a course? Well, actually, to be honest, the very first moment I thought about families, faculty, I didn't even know that that was a term, but I had this idea in my head over, it was over 20 years ago, to be honest. It was right after I'd finished my student teaching in Mexico City. I lived there for almost two years and um, did my student teaching through the Cal State program where I was able to um, teach kids in a fifth grade classroom in Mexico City and also third grade students in a Maya um, Spanish bilingual school in the Yucatan. And I knew being a student teacher that I was there just learning. And my Spanish was, um, I'm Mexican, but my Spanish isn't um, perfect. It's pretty darn good, but it's not um, when it comes to content language, like talking about scientific terms. I had to really study that to be able to teach. And when I got down there, I felt, um, and I was working in both of these schools, I immediately felt welcomed. I immediately felt that the communities embraced me, not only the educators there, the administrators and the students, but the families. And even though they knew I was probably fumbling around, not knowing what I was doing, making a lot of mistakes, they gave me a lot of grace and they provided me with a lot of opportunities to get to know their children and their homes and their families in really personal and caring ways. And there's a term that we use in Spanish called cariño. And cariño is a genuine caring for another human being. And I really felt that. Mm -hmm. So when I came back to the States to teach in Tucson, Arizona, in a predominantly Latino district, I was mortified, mortified by how a lot of the educators and teachers and communities did not welcome and accept the families in the school who were mostly Latino families. Families. And I thought, oh my gosh, I wonder what they think of us. You know, they're mm-hmm. so welcoming to us in their country, and we are showing them the exact opposite. We need to begin to change the narrative here. And even back then, I knew I wanted to do something in my career where I could give back to the Latino community and to other communities who have experienced that sense of not being welcomed in our country, mm-hmm. which I feel is such. Um, it's it, there's a hypocrisy there because our our country um, is full of immigrants and you know it's a, it's you know other than all of the origins of this country which I won't go into which were destructive to a lot of native and indigenous peoples we can talk about how this country is full of immigrants and um, so to not be welcoming of immigrants has always blown my mind and I really am committed to changing that narrative. How have students responded to the course? When I hear about it I think oh wow I would take that in a heartbeat but when I think back to myself as a college student you know my development was a little different and so what, what have you seen the trajectory of students from entering the course toward the end, um, starting with, you know, the receptiveness to how it's changed their views? So 
The majority of the pre-service teachers that I work with are predominantly white, middle-class, female, English-speaking students who may or may not have experienced traveling internationally or even um, getting to know or being integrated in other cultures. So when I tell them <laughs> that they're going to be working with and be and learning from families who do not speak English, uh, they I have had some students pull me aside after class and say that they're terrified. They are terrified because they don't know how they're going to communicate and they've never worked with families like this before. Not only families who are not English speaking, but for many, even though they might be going into the profession to work with children with disabilities, may never have had a personal or one-on-one experience with a person who has a disability, particularly maybe a more um, involved disability, you know, very visible disability, a very physical disability. And there is a sense of, um, I'm really scared. And on top of that, if they bring in certain biases that they're struggling with about immigrants in the country, about some of the things we were just talking about, or about um, who should receive services, who should not receive services, where do our taxpayer dollars go to, who are they funding, all of the rhetoric that you have out in the political landscape trickles down and impacts individual understandings of what teaching is and who should be taught, how they should be taught. And so when I confront them with dismantling some of those ideologies, there is tension and conflict that arise. But I'm really, I'm really now comfortable in those tensions. And that's where I know that we can learn about and from one another and hopefully um, dismantle some of those assumptions and biases that bring us back down to that humanizing component that makes us um, look at each other eye to eye and know that we're part of the human family. Yeah, I think that's really beautiful. And you and I have had multiple conversations outside of today uh, on this exact topic. And each time I talk to you about this, I'm re-inspired that we can change perspectives that folks may bring with them into educational settings you have one example of a student you could share where you maybe felt like there wasn't going to be much of an opportunity for change there as hard as you tried, but you did see over time that there was change in their attitude? Yeah, I remember one in particular. Um, he, uh, he was actually one of my uh, master's students, and he had already been in schools was looking to become an administrator in special education, um, was uh, coming out of a military background, had served, and due to service had experienced a lot of different kinds of traumas. Um, part and, and then coming back to, I think he served in Afghanistan and he came back to teaching and um, really wanted to work with children and families with, uh, children with disabilities and their families. And he 
was, uh, I think, from Indiana, born and raised here with um, ideologies that were all about what being American is in this country around the lines of, you know, you need to be English speaking, you need to um, act and be a certain way, have certain ways of looking at the world. I'm going to be pretty broad here um, because I don't want to bring in, there's enough divisiveness out there in the political sure. rhetoric. But what I will say yeah. is that I, that my ideologies really um, were very difficult to him. And I really appreciated him because after class, after every class, he'd come up to me and go, um, Professor Graf, um, Santa Maria Graf, I'm really struggling with your class. I, you're asking me to reflect on my ideologies, but they're totally incongruent with yours and how you are bringing in families as experts, especially um, Latino immigrant families. And you're asking me to learn from them. And I've I've been taught that um, that these that these people. Um, you know, shouldn't even be in this country. And I'm really struggling with that. And he was so honest with me. And when a person, even, even though we differed at that point in our belief systems and where we were coming from, because he was willing to lay bare himself and be honest, I could then be there as witness to his journey and I could support him. And I never told him, you're wrong. You're wrong for thinking that you should get out of teaching because he was willing to come to me and be completely honest with what he was struggling with. I knew that there was an entry point and we could work together. And it is really a meeting of minds and meeting of hearts and working together in a space where we can struggle and toil and have tension together and then maybe come out learning from one another. Um, I learned from him that there is a whole group of people that I have misjudged probably. Um, you know, I have, I'm not from a military family. My husband is, but I haven't always understood some of the ideologies um, in different ways. And he helped me to understand that there's a whole um, population, a demographic of people that have been raised in certain ways of thinking that make it very hard for them to kind of break free into maybe um, opening and thinking about people uh, out, that are maybe immigrants or that have a different life experience in ways where they are, um, it's not that they aren't valued, it's more that they struggle with well, I worked really hard for our country and I worked really hard to be here and so did my family. And it seems to me what I'm being told and what I'm seeing that people are getting like um, free things, you know, they're getting free services or this or that. And, um, and when we, and, and that was like the crux of some of the tensions, like why should they come and, and be in our schools when maybe they're not paying taxes? But then we, we really started looking at some of that rhetoric and going deeper into it. And I was, I started bringing in articles, bringing in news stories, bringing in other ways of thinking about the, the issues he was bringing up and challenging me with. And there were certain things he didn't know about that. For example, that undocumented individuals are paying taxes um, in many different ways and um, are contributing to our society in multiple ways. And three, 
through those conversations, we learned from one another. And in the end, I'm not saying that he was, he converted to my point of view, but what he did was he opened his mind to thinking about very deeply how he was considering other people, particularly immigrants in this country. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It reminds me of one time I had a conversation and someone said to me, once you know, you can't unknow. And it sounds like that conversation went both ways. He challenged you in some ways and, and opened your eyes to some ways that he may be thinking. And in turn, you were able to challenge him back. And the end of the day, that is a situation where once you know, you can't unknow. And it does change your perspective. Do you know where he is now? Um, I believe he is, I don't know for sure, but I know he was looking and going into administration. Um, And I think he might've changed his mind and went into counseling because he felt Mm. that um, he did write me a couple years ago and say that he was not, not just because of our conversations, but that was maybe a beginning point, a platform that he began to explore because he began to explore his feelings for the first time. And part of what was difficult about explore, the exploration of his own feelings was that he realized that he was not he was no longer congruent with his family's ideologies and belief systems. And he felt that his identity was so entrenched in what his, how he was raised that breaking from that was somehow being betraying his family. But he had to reconcile that feeling of I'm not betraying my family necessarily. What I'm doing is I'm, I'm taking, there's a fork in the road now for me, a branch, a tree branch that we're on the same tree, but I'm taking a different branch and I'm still connected to them and I still love them. And I'm not saying I don't respect them, but what I'm saying is I have to go off into this, this on this other branch to grow and to learn and become who I am. And because he did that work, that internal work, I think he wanted to share that kind of internal work with others. And so I think he became, I think he started going on the counseling route. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that story. You just walked away with the Linton Award, and that's the highest national honor given to pre-tenured faculty for their teaching, research, and service to community engagement. Congrats to you because that's well-deserved. I mean, I've known you now for several years, and you do deserve this award uh, so much. So what's next? Um, Is there anything cooking up that you can share with our listeners? Thank you for asking. Um, I'm always thinking of new things and new kind of uh, ways to think about my scholarship. Um, My mind is constantly running. And recently, as we have all, as we all know, and we're all experiencing, we're dealing with a pandemic. And one of the first questions that arose for me in working with the families that I work with is how is COVID-19 and all of its ramifications impacting the livelihood and well-being of children? And in my conversations with the families with whom I have contact with regularly, um, including the Latino immigrant families, what I have learned, not just from them, but from my own personal experiences being a mother and a parent here at home, um, trying to do e-learning in my own household, is that the e-learning platform, the way that it was constructed and put together, and by no means am I faulting any educators, no one could prepare for this type of situation where we have to take everything 
out of face-to-face classrooms and put it online pretty much overnight. But what I think we've learned from it is that um, even with our greatest intentions, our best intentions to produce very um, well-constructed and um, deep content-oriented information for families and for students to work with during this time that we... um, in some ways we've really, you know, missed the boat or we, we have failed. And some of those failings are just structural, just getting it online. Um, others though have to do with communication. How do we, part of, part of teaching, so much of teaching is relational. The um, one-to-one conversations we have with our students and with our families to make the learning meaningful, to make it feel authentic, to know the purpose behind what we're doing. And, that has been kind of lost in some of the translation here through, you know, I know teachers are trying so hard with Zoom meetings and I'm, I myself, you know, I'm, a, I'm an instructor too, like Zoom meetings um, can do some of the, uh, provide some of that relational component to education, but we need to reach families um, during these times in ways where they feel that what they're receiving is purposeful to their own family environment that is authentic to who they are as a family that draws upon their cultural linguistic and other strengths and that is something that they feel that they can integrate more naturally into their fabric of their everyday life and I'm interested in looking at family-centered lesson plans that families create during these times of uncertainty. So if we have to go back into an e-learning situation in the fall or even next academic year, that we can, families can rely on family-generated, family-driven lesson plans that have been created by families, that have been informed by, by families to share out with other families and with other educators. And so I am looking at projects where um, we are creating this repository or digital library, I'm hoping, um, where families are forefront and centered in the whole creation process. That's great. And that's building off of the work that you've already done. And I can't wait to see where that goes. And it's responding to the moment, which I think is really important. Dr. Christina Santa Maria Graff, thank you for joining me on the Compact Nation podcast. So happy to be here. Thank you so much, JR. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. And we are now ready for the part of the show where no matter what's going on in the world, (laughs) we locate things that are sparking joy for us, sometimes despite of, sometimes somehow related to all of the rest of it. Um, Who's got a uh, spark of joy in their life? Well, I'm I'm happy to go. So it's... um Some of our listeners probably know I live in Des Moines, Iowa. We, like most communities, have had a lot of demonstrations, protests, rallies. Um, I've been very excited to see a lot of young people getting organized. And I mean, it's been rallies and demonstrations, but it's also been food and supply drives and community events, you know, designed to bring 
joy and meaning and community. And it's just been really exciting to see it's had real results in terms of the passage of a law at the state level, the passage of new ordinances and studies at the city council level. And I'm just always excited to see new people getting engaged, staying engaged, getting results from their efforts. And I hope it all continues. Um, I would say for me, along the same lines, I'm really um, excited and happy to see like the sustained protests and like movements building happening um, at the same time as real like even if the results right now are symbolic, but there's conversations happening that haven't happened and have needed to happen. And so this kind of opening up of space, um, even though, you know, it's it's hard um, to, to actually do the real work of what like truth and reconciliation is. So for me, that's sparking a lot of joy. Also, I have a 16 year old son. So seeing him like get involved politically and like having these conversations with him um, about awareness and just really proud of like the young man that he's uh, becoming and through this, right. And the, what he's doing on his own and the conversations were happening. And I think on a personal level, uh, my mom has been in the hospital since um, Easter. Uh, she suffers from diabetes. She had to have an amputation, but she's coming home at the end of the week. So for me, that's oh, wonderful to be finally able to have my mom back home and we haven't really been able to see her because of the pandemic. Um, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm sparking a lot of joy. It's going to be a lot of work for us and adjustment, but it'll be good to have her home. I'm glad uh, your mom is coming home. And I think it has been such a complicated time for anybody whose parents have not been well or others in their lives and the inability to visit and all those things. So I'm very glad she'll be reentering your world in that way. Uh, I... <laughs> That's right. Yay That's for parents to drive you crazy. So what's been sparking joy for me uh, as a, uh, you know, sometimes because I'm a sports fan, there's a lot of ambivalence because sports is not always associated with the most uh, uplifting aspects of social life all the time and political life. Um, but right now there's some great examples of athletes who uh, whose athleticism I love uh, being great leaders in various ways. Uh, on the other side of the pond, Marcus Rashford, uh, the the attacking player for Manchester United, um, led a successful effort to get the conservative government to extend free meals for kids, even as schools were ending. So they were quite determined to wrap those up. And uh, essentially, I think most people credit Marcus Rashford kind of personally with intervening, uh, publishing op-eds, starting a movement, putting an enormous amount of pressure and uh, getting the outcome that he wanted when he first encountered basically dismissiveness uh, from the conservative leadership. So that was impressive and, and terrific. And I think also became an occasion for him to shine a light on uh, what had been his own experience as a kid from a low-income family growing up in Manchester and uh, and starting a larger conversation about what poverty looks like in the UK. Uh, and here in the US, uh, people may well know, but uh, LeBron James and other NBA players 
um, and other athletes from other sports uh, just launched an organization called More Than a Vote. And part of it is intended simply to connect the movement for black lives to participation in elections, uh, to drive outcomes that way. But part of it, and this is the reason I think they're calling it More Than a Vote, is to call attention to and fight efforts at voter suppression, especially those that are race based. And so I think, you know, they're uh, dedicating a lot of their personal wealth to this, but also their voices um, and their time and their efforts. Um, and I think it's great. So I was excited to see both those things happening. Um, and it makes me feel a little bit better yeah. about the sometimes pointless activity and sometimes even worse activity of uh, rooting for major sports teams. I'll just take a minute to name drop that a friend of mine that I worked with on a presidential campaign many years ago is the executive director of More Than a Vote. Oh, So I'm like one degree from LeBron James at this point. (laughs) That's pretty much it. I will say having uh, some nephews who grew up in Akron, uh, which is the city where LeBron James comes from, uh, he has been an incredibly positive presence in that city for years and has invested money very smartly, um, not sort of just like PR stuff, but real uh, infrastructure for parks, for schools. Um, he's just been a tremendously positive presence there. And um, so it's great to see also his using uh, his platform in a nationally focused way. I think we and should I, invite LeBron James to the podcast uh, to talk about more than a boat. I heard Emily I'm say on that, it. that I'm we on it. get that done. Yeah, girl, that's what, do it. Yeah. So listen in the look forward to future episodes. <laughs> uh, I'm pretty sure it's going to happen. We'll be off for the summer, but if that one comes through, you'll see a surprise one. Sure. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> There'll be a lot of surprises. Right, right. <laughs> awesome. Uh, we'll, we'll change the name, whatever he needs, you know, LeBron cast. It's anything we can do. Yeah, no, stop, necessary. stop now. <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm just saying, just saying. Uh, all right, well. This has been the Compact Nation podcast. Uh, Thank you for listening. And as always, don't forget to rate and review our show. If you've got any questions, suggestions, you can email us at podcast at compact.org, or you can join the conversation on social media at the hashtag Compact Nation pod. And uh, everybody, we just hope you stay safe, stay healthy, stay sane, uh, stay connected to people. And we hope to connect with you again very soon. So bye-bye, everybody. Bye. Bye. Compact Nation podcast comes to you from Campus Compact's national headquarters in the Leather District of Boston, Massachusetts. Our hosts are Marisol Morales, Emily Shields, and me, Andrew Seligson. Our producer is Molly Altiorem Leeper. Music is by Andrew Savage. You can find more of his music at andrewsavage.net. As always, you can find us online at compact.org slash podcast or on social media at hashtag compactnationpod. Thanks for listening. I am the podcat.